This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Well, good evening. Uh, My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here. And... uh... Used to, it was kind of like this, and now it's like this. So I'm going to shift to fit with what y'all did. I'll be interested to see what happens next week. Maybe you'll go that way a little farther, or maybe we'll spread out both directions. But um, I love the outdoor seating. Um, It's getting crazier every week. And um, we are in the book of Romans. So if you want to um, get out your phone, or if you actually have a paper Bible, that would be pretty unique. I've not seen one of those in a long time. Um, there's that, with that gigantic bulletin, you can actually write things down now on the bulletin really easily, so you might want to do that. Um, but our passage for this evening uh, comes from Romans 12. And uh, Romans 12 is the uh, begins a section of Romans where he moves kind of from, uh, if you will, theology to Ethics and all the ethics, all the morality of Christian um, thinking is based in the theology, is rooted and grounded in the theological statements he's already made. So we looked at the beginning last week uh, of Christian ethics, and now we move to uh, ethics within the household of God. And then next week it'll be the way Christians live uh, with those who are outside of the household of God. Okay, so this week, uh, Christian behavior, Christian moral behavior within the household of God. Romans 12, 9 through 16. Don't pretend to love each other. Really love each other. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection. Take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think that you know it all. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Okay, so um, 
if there was a city that I would like to visit in the ancient world, if I had been living in the year, um, let's say, 70 um, AD, when Paul, around the time Paul wrote this letter, I would not have picked Rome. I would have picked uh, a city in Syria called Antioch. And it's been described as the uh, birthplace of Christianity. Uh, because it was the perhaps most cosmopolitan city in the entire Roman Empire. It was on this, uh, they called the Silk Road, which kind of linked Asia to both Europe and Africa. And you would all go through Antioch, all the different trade routes, all the spice routes. They had a hippodrome that held 80,000 people. Gorgeous city, you can Google it. There were people there from Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, Rome, France, Spain, India, China, Pakistan, all these different people all over the world right there. There's probably nothing like it in the world today. Toronto is a very cosmopolitan city. So if you've been there, imagine something like Toronto. And into that city in about the year 40, these Jews came from Jerusalem, which was to the south, not too many miles to the south. And uh, these exiled Jews who were Messianic Jews, they believed in the Messiah, they had been kicked out of, uh, out of Jerusalem uh, by the Jewish leaders, and they fled to Antioch. And they get to Antioch, and all of a sudden in Antioch, um, you have this incredible melting pot occur where the, the, the Jewish Christians begin to welcome in everyone. And from all different uh, levels of society, from Roman citizens all the way down to slaves. Um, all were welcomed, all were brought in, and there was born right there in Antioch this brand new reality on earth, which is a non-biological, supernatural, multi-ethnic family. And that's what Paul's talking about here. The same family that later occurred in Rome, in the largest city in the empire. And so I want to look at that family. Paul uses the word storge in Greek, which is a word for family for family affections. There's several words for love in the Greek language, and storge was the one for family. When he says love one another with brotherly affection in verse 10, really it probably shouldn't be brotherly. It's just with family affection. He's saying y'all are a new family, and you are a radically different kind of family, and he would say it to you too, from the family that we see around us in Rome, in the empire, where you have um, this alternative to the uh, highly stratified ways of Rome, where you had kind of the male Roman citizen, you had the females, the children, the bond servants, the slaves. That was completely gone in the church. I mean, they, people still had their roles to play. He didn't just make everyone equal, but all the, all the hierarchy, everyone was treated the same way, with the same amount of dignity. And so I want to look at this new family, and then I want to look at the... Um, what makes it stick together? Because it wasn't bloodlines. It wasn't class. It wasn't uh, education level. It was the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit. So first of all, the new family, and then the blood of the family, which is the Holy Spirit. Those two things. First of all, the new family. Let love be genuine. So the family was so counter-imperial they actually invented a new word. It wasn't actually a new word. It was a word that was very seldom used uh, by the Greeks. The word is agape or agape. Um, and Paul actually says, let the love 
It's the definite article, let the love be genuine, because it was so definitive, it was so defining of the people that he called it capital T, capital L, the love, the agape. Let the agape be genuine. In other words, let it overcome the Jew-Gentile distinction, the slave-free, the barbarian, citizen, dismantling all the hierarchies, all the racial superiority, all the class snobbery, all the intellectual pride, all the things we still have today. He says uh, in verse 16, don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And uh, that would be a, a tall order for some of the people in Rome to actually enjoy the company of people at a lower level uh, in the class rankings. And that's a call to all of us to do the same today. And to not think that you know it all. And to rid yourself of a little bit of the intellectual pride that is currently manifesting itself terribly in our politics. So even that would be an application. Don't think that you know it all about politics. And do not be too proud to hang around with people of the other political persuasion, even if they know a lot less than you do about politics. That was the motto of the new family. No more pride, no more know-it-alls, equality. There was a Greek writer who despised the new family of Christ. Uh, his name was Lucian. Uh, Lucian of Samosata. If he had been alive today, he would have written for the New Yorker. Uh, he was a very proud cynic, uh, which, by the way, is the best writing of any paper probably in the world. So, you know, nothing against the New Yorker, but this guy would have written for the New Yorker. Uh, Lucian of Samosata. And uh, he has this uh, little story about a, a man named Peregrinus who uh, interacted with the early church. And uh, so this is an interesting depiction of what the Christians looked like to someone who was uh, an antagonist, you know, in the first century. Uh, an early antagonist looking on to what the Christians were like. He said, these deluded people, they deny the gods and they worship a man crucified in Palestine. And you can just, you can just see the sneer on his face as he says this. And they claim that they are all brothers and sisters of one another, pathetic creatures. So he's, he, he hears the claim to, that there is a new family and he scoffs at it. And he was especially contemptuous of uh, the generosity, the sharing of the early church. He says they are so indiscriminate with their giving that if any charlatan or trickster comes upon them, he quickly acquires sudden wealth by imposing upon their simplicity. And actually, in his story of Peregrinus, that's exactly what Peregrinus does. He kind of enters into the church community for a little bit and sees what he can get out of it. And this is what uh, Lucian says. When, when uh, Peregrinus enters the church family, he gets thrown into jail because he's a Christian. And listen to what uh, the early Christians do. This is from Lucian's own words. From the break of day, aged, aged widows and orphan children could be seen waiting near the prison. So picture that from morning to evening. You have these widows, these older women, and these orphan children that the church has brought into its life waiting near the prison. Even their elders and deacons slept inside with him after bribing the guards. Elaborate meals were brought in and their sacred books were read aloud. People even came from cities in Asia to succor and encourage him. Now, he's making fun of the Christians, but it's all the more reason we can trust this really happened. Uh, this is eyewitness testimony to the supernatural generosity of this early 
church community. And Paul says in verse 13, when God's people are in need, be ready to help them, eager to practice hospitality. Even if you get snookered, even if you get used, uh, even if you're swindled by someone, practice hospitality, he's saying. And I think that a lot of young people today, they yearn for this. I grew up in the 80s when greed was good and people didn't yearn for this. Uh, It was a sad decade in some ways. Uh, In your generation, those of you who are younger, uh, that's not the the case anymore. There's a a yearning, there's a hunger for justice, uh, for generosity. It's a very beautiful thing. But sadly, a lot of people are moving towards politics uh, or social movements to find that generosity. And I'm telling you, there's no spirit there. There's no Holy Spirit there. And so you can find a counterfeit of that, but it's not going to be lasting. It will not be enduring. It will not give you what you want. You're not going to ever have politics recreate the following situation from the book of Acts. This is Acts 2:44. All who believed were together and they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and their belongings and they were distributing them to everyone who had need. You can't legislate that. Uh, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Luke 12:33. It's all coming from the original teachings of Jesus. Sell your possessions and give them to the poor, he says. So in the church, in the spirit-filled community, we give money away. We give money away. That's what we do. You know, sadly, the average Christian gives less than uh, 5% of their money away, but that's still better than what you're going to see in the world. And it, and it should be more. And I bet you if you interviewed the average church-going person, it would be a lot more than that. But Christians give money away. So we do. We have, a, we have a mercy fund in our church that uh, our servant leaders take up regularly, and it has, uh, there's a large amount of money there, and anyone that has need comes and asks us, and we give it. Um, we, we give it freely. We give it generously. There's, some, there's something called crisis control right over there, and all the churches in the city, about two decades ago, they, maybe three, they gathered together and they said, let's do our mercy ministry together. And uh, they started this ministry downtown, Crisis Control. It's beautiful. You can go volunteer there. It's amazing. You get to know the people who come and they need help. We bring meals to each other in this church. We bring meals to young mothers. We bring meals to people who have sickness and illness. Um, we, people drop off large anonymous checks in this church. I've gotten one. Um, people dropped off a gift bag to our family this week when we were in great need. That just happens all the time. That's what Christians do. That's what the Spirit does. And while we're doing that, we do not envy people with more money than us. Okay, that's why Paul says we rejoice with those who have more. We, we are happy with those who are happy, verse 15. We don't, we don't envy them or we're not jealous of them. Nor do we look down upon those who have less Verse 15, we weep with those who weep. We don't pity them. We, we grieve with them for their lack. But we see them as equals, brothers and sisters that are equal. And, and this is probably the most, this probably distinguishes us from the political world more than anything, is that we, we challenge anyone who is lazy. So Paul says, if anyone will not work, he should not eat. In other words, you cannot freeload off the church. In other words, we're not going to enable someone who doesn't want to work at all to just keep not working because that's not good for them. 
And so we challenge that in the church. Verse 11, never be lazy, but work hard. That's a very radical thing to do. While you're being extremely generous, you're saying, but we can't enable you to not work. That's not good for you. So in, in God's family, we don't just share our money, we share our sin, which is probably even harder to share than your money. Because, the, the, because privacy kind of goes away or it gets really fuzzy. So privacy gets kind of fuzzy the more you get into the church because you start to just voluntarily give up the need to hold on to your private sins and you start telling people and confessing them and asking for accountability. And so Paul says, don't just pretend to love others. Pretense means you don't ever challenge anyone. It means you want them to like you so much that you won't tell them something hard. He says, really love them. He says, hate what is wrong and cling to what is good. You cannot love someone unless you hate what is wrong. I think hate is very underrated. Uh, hate is, is just as important as love. You've got to hate things that are hateful, that are horrible, that are disgusting, that twist people's souls, that harm people, that oppress people, that abuse people. We should hate these things. With the same love that we love the person, we hate the sin. Uh, love the sinner, hate the sin is the old formula. And so uh, we're supposed to not pretend to love each other, but to challenge each other. And the question is, I challenge you now, have you challenged anyone in the last week, the last month, the last year? Have you ever challenged anybody? Confronted them gently, very gently, with enormous humility, no superiority, but you just say, you know, this is just me, I'm, this is what I'm seeing in you. I can't say for sure your motives or anything like that, but uh, I see, I think you might be going down a bad road, and I'm not claiming to be better than you, but I, th these are patterns I'm seeing in your life, and I'm praying for you, and I just wanted to tell you that because I love you. Have you done anything like that? Because I know that you know someone that needs to hear that. We all do. How they treat their spouse, or you see greed in them, you see gossip in them, you see struggles with um, perhaps pornography, maybe even moving towards an affair, and you say, I've got to tell you what I see. You know, I, I trust my family enough that my trust in them outweighs my fear of rejection, and so I actually can tell my family hard things. And when your trust and love overcomes your fear of rejection or disapproval, then you can actually tell people hard things. You can start really small. You know, start, don't go to the big things. Start with like you've got something in your teeth right now. Or um, you're not wearing a mask right now. You should probably put your, your mask on right now. You start small, and then you move on to bigger things. Like I've noticed that you uh, cheat on tests. You know, people, you, you probably know somebody that does. Not good for them. Or I notice that you take advantage of people. Or I've seen that you, um, the way you treat people sometimes is manipulative. Stuff like that. Don't start there, but move towards that. And again, I say that this can only happen if you have a very deep awareness of how loved you are. Um, you have to have a counterbalancing weight of love to be able to overcome your fear of disapproval and tell people hard things. Don't just pretend to love. Let love be genuine and hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. So that's the first point is this new family, radical new family. Uh, the second point is that it is created by the Holy Spirit. 
It's created by the Holy Spirit. So verse 11 in the New Living Translation, I hope you have a better translation in, in, in your hands right now than the New Living Translation's translation of verse 11. But verse 11 in the New Living Translation, which I read from, says, serve the Lord enthusiastically, which is a terrible translation. Serve the Lord enthusiastically. That doesn't inspire anything or really tell me that much. What it says in Greek is, be set on fire by the Holy Spirit. I mean, come on, that's a completely different idea than serve enthusiastically. Be set on fire by the Holy Spirit is a profound challenge and a deep theological statement. Be set on fire by the Holy Spirit. That doesn't just mean I raise my hands or I cry a lot uh, or I feel great emotion, although I would say those are part of it. But what they're talking about there is Pentecost. If you know the story of Pentecost, when the church was first created, fire came down. Tongues of fire came down on people. So here's the story. It's in Acts chapter 2, right before that other passage I read about sharing everything. And you've got all these pilgrims from all over the world in Jerusalem. They're from uh, they're Medes, Egyptians, Libyans, Cretans, Arabs, and Parthians, all over the empire, kind of like in Antioch. This is now Jerusalem, and they're all gathered, uh, Jew and Gentile, and suddenly this holy fire comes down upon um, many, many people, hundreds of people, and actually turns into thousands eventually. Uh, and this is what it says in Acts 2.2. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a hurricane. Sometimes it says mighty rushing wind, but um, we were one time in the Florida Keys and there was a really powerful tropical storm that, and it, it was going to, over the top of our house and it sounded like a freight train. That's what, that's what Acts is talking It was a sound like a hurricane. And it filled the entire house where the early church was gathered and an inferno blazed around them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were so filled with passion that when the onlooking crowd saw them, they thought they were drunk. They said, it's only like, it's not even noon and they're already drunk. What's wrong with these people? But they were drunk on the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul says in the uh, book of Ephesians chapter 5, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Which I always like to think of, what he's really saying is, don't get drunk on wine, get drunk on the Holy Spirit. So this is like very powerful stuff, like Everclear, you know, very high content alcohol. The Holy Spirit can make you feel like you're drunk. It really can. Um, it can light you on fire. It can make your emotions come to life. It can give you ecstasy. It can give you the, uh, the kind of tipsy feeling that you have when you are drunk. Uh, but the difference is, whereas when you're drunk, you become less clear, you kind of black out, you, 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 know, you slur your words, when you're with the Holy Spirit, it's exactly the opposite. You become very clear. You become very sharp, very focused. Your mind is engaged. Because when the Holy Spirit comes upon the early church and this, the tongues of fire and the hurricane and all that, what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon them is they begin to proclaim the gospel. So when the Holy Spirit is on you, you begin to be very clear about the gospel. And so in Acts 2.26, Peter says... When he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he says, Know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Messiah, the Jesus who you crucified. 
In other words, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the early church, what they do is they begin to talk about Jesus. And they begin to talk about his crucifixion and his resurrection. And they begin to say that uh, with ecstatic certainty, which is a great idea, a certainty that creates ecstasy. With this ecstatic certainty, they say that the crucified one reigns. The crucified one is the Lord of the universe. And, and when the Spirit comes into you and you begin to feel that with ecstatic certainty, that's when the church is born. All this other stuff happens when that happens. That's what you need right now. Be set on fire by the Holy Spirit. Verse 12 says, Rejoice in our confident hope and be patient in trouble. And the word trouble is the word for affliction or being smashed together uh, or tightly constricted in your chest. When I had a heart attack, um, my chest felt like somebody was just grabbing it, a very strong person, and just tightening it. And that's the word here. Um, be patient in your constriction in your soul when you feel absolutely grabbed a hold of and smashed and afflicted. Um, Paul is saying in verse 12, you can actually, you can actually have long-suffering, patience, even joy, because you have so much ecstatic certainty that the crucified one rules the world. Because in your own, you know, in your own despair, in your own greatest darkness, the place in your mind right now that you have the greatest fear and anxiety, um, the place where you are tempted to despair and be hopeless. That's the very place where Paul is saying you can look down the barrel of that despair and you can see light. You can see the one who was crucified reigning in that place. And that's what we get at this table. The, the table is um, like the, the bottom of a U. And if you know the shape of a U or a, a parallelogram, um, a parabola, I mean, at the bottom of the parabola, um, the acceleration rate changes rapidly as you get to the bottom. And it goes from, very, from extremely uh, high you know, acceleration downward to extremely high acceleration upward. So that, that's, what, that's what the table is. At the bottom of the U, where things are going down so fast, it turns the corner into glory. And that's what God is always doing. He's always redeeming. He's taking things that are terrible and he's making beautiful things out of them. You know, the, the Christian life not just like an upward, smooth slope. It's used everywhere. It's going down to the depth and then coming up out of the depth with sudden grandeur. And that's what we celebrate here. Salvation out of despair and hope where there is no hope. And...